Let me read you some advice given on how to be a success in life. Get going. Move forward. Aim high. Plan a takeoff. Don't just sit on the runway and hope someone will come along and push the airplane. It simply won't happen. Change your attitude and gain some altitude. Believe me, you'll love it up here. Who said that? Any guesses? I didn't quite catch that, but it wasn't the right answer. <laughs> no, before he went into politics, Donald Trump. <laughs> the self-made man. Successful property tycoon, the epitome of a man who, by all this world standards, has been a success. Now, before you get worried about me, I do not have Donald Trump's speeches as my bedside reading. But some of you may remember that that passage that I read was quoted by Graham Tomlin in his book, Looking Through the Cross which was our Lent study book for last year, and which I'm dipping into it again, and it's a great blessing. Graham Tomlin, in his book, highlights three elements from that extract from Donald Trump's speech. Three assumptions that are implicit in his advice. If you want to be a success, the way is upwards. You're on your own. No one's going to help you. Life is a contest. Success goes to those who make it happen. My friends, we're here this morning because these motives have no part in our calling. We're marching to a different drumbeat. Someone has captured our hearts and minds and just like... Carol and Stuart, Val and Adrian, we find that this is a God whom we love to serve and who is involved in every part of our lives. The trouble is that most of us so easily close our ears to the voice of the one who has captured our hearts and given us a new theme to life. We so easily stray from the path that's marked out for us. Which is why we look at these ancient writings gathered together in this wonderful collection of books, 66 books that we call the Bible. And why we're going to be looking this morning at a part of a letter written in AD 52 by the Apostle Paul to a small group of people meeting in the Greek city of Corinth. Like us, this group of people were marching to a different drumbeat. Like us, they were centering their lives around something other than success and upward mobility. Someone had captured their hearts and minds. They were known as people of the way, although some people were starting to use the derogatory term Christians with a sneer to describe these people who talked about an anointed one who was their saviour. They were people very much like us. 
and yet they lived in a world that was very, very different from ours. As we discover, as we're going through our studies in this book that we know as 1 Corinthians, they lived in a pagan culture. You may think, oh, we're living in a pagan culture, but we're not. None of us has any experience of living in a totally pagan culture. Not even if you lived in the Soviet Union 50 years ago, you still lived in a, in a culture that owed quite a lot to Christian teaching. Certainly our Western world owes so much. We cannot imagine what it must be like to live in a world which owes nothing to Jesus Christ and the teachings of 2,000 years of Christianity. So these people in Corinth were facing a difficult task that is far more difficult than ours. They were trying to work out how to live out the teachings of Jesus Christ in a totally pagan culture. And in this little group of people, there were some very clever people, philosophers, because the ancient world loved philosophy, they put them on a pedestal, these men, and they were always men, who spoke words of wisdom. And there were a few lower-grade philosophers who were part of this new Christian community, which was a problem because, in their cleverness, they were working out the answers to these things. They were working out how to adapt to a pagan culture, and the trouble is, they were tearing the church apart, which is the whole reason behind this letter to the Corinthians. Paul, over there in Ephesus, some hundreds of miles away, had heard stories, not just rumours, he'd heard reliable stories that things were going wrong in this church that he had founded just two years earlier. And so he writes this letter that is full of passion, full of love for the people, but sometimes showing just a little bit of impatience with them. And the message, if we had to sum up the message of 1 Corinthians in just one phrase, is that there's no room for cleverness in God's kingdom. God's kingdom does not consist in people who've worked out how to be a success in life. There's no room for cleverness, whether it be by philosophers or preachers. We have a different sort of wisdom, which is the theme of the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians. What is important is not how much we know, but how much we love, which comes to its climax, as you will know, in that wonderful chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians and where the Apostle Paul admits that for all his learning, for all his skill in oratory, for all the spiritual wisdom that God had given him, even he didn't know all the answers. Now I know in part, he said, one day I will fully know even as I am fully known. And he goes on to say, I the great apostle, if I have not love, I am worthless. Now, one of the problems that we're going to look at this morning that they found in the pagan world, that we have no parallel whatsoever, which is the reason for this lengthy introduction. It was eating out. 
Oh dear, you say, Mike's going to talk about gluttony. <laughs> no, that wasn't their problem. That's a problem of modern-day affluent Britain. This was a problem of conscience. Conscience? Not of spending too much money. No, let's go back into that pagan culture. The city of Corinth, like many other large cities, was dotted about with temples. The only trouble was they weren't temples to God, they were temples to idols. Various, almost like secret societies, cults of people who worship these different gods. Probably didn't take them all that seriously, but they felt that it was good to be in one or other of these clubs. And what they would do, they would take meat along to these idolatrous temples. The meat would be sacrificed, it would be cooked, sacrificed to the idols, and then the worshippers would eat it. And of course, inevitably, they had quite a lot left over if they'd all taken something to offer as a sacrifice. And so you could go in and you could eat at the idol's temple without having taken part in the worship. And some of it might even be sold in the butcher's shops. So can we see the problem? Meat that we might buy at the butcher's or at Sainsbury's, with no problem, unless we've got a conscience about it coming halfway around the world, but that's another, another topic. Meats that they got almost invariably had been used in idolatrous worship. And that caused a problem. And let's look and see how the Apostle Paul applies his spiritual wisdom to this dilemma. I've heard, I've heard preachers tie me in knots over this passage, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to pick out three very simple points that I, have been a blessing to me and I hope will be a blessing to you. First of all, we have one God and Father. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 6 says, For even if there are, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. This was something mind-blowing for the majority of the Christians there at Corinth, that there was just one God, not this confusing spaghetti of different beliefs. They'd come out of a pagan background, as I've already said, that's so dark spiritually that we can't possibly imagine it. They had had superstition, fears, and idolatry dominating their lives. A few of the congregation were, of course, Jews. The idea of there being one God was nothing new to them. But even for them, they had known God as lawgiver, one whose high standards seemed so out of reach to the ordinary man or woman in the street. A stern and at times wrathful God, who had to be worshipped in rituals that were set in patterns that went back many centuries. But now, to Jew and a Gentile alike, in that little group of people met together there in Corinth, there would come the good news that there was only one God and his main characteristic was love. A God of love. 
we say the word so glibly, don't we? But this was mind-shattering. This was exciting. The God whom we're called to worship is a God of love. God is love. And it's the love of a father. This God, yes, he was the creator of all that we can see, but he makes himself known to us in this wonderful, intimate relationship of father. I don't know what Freya and David were getting out of the children's talk. Well, I do know what they I, I was. My mind was working and getting different things because it was interesting, showing a father and the offering. And I think sometimes we offer up to God something that, by God's standards, must be very substandard. But he loves us. He loves us. He loves our worship. He loves it when he, we talk to him. He's a patient father. He's a father who loves us for just being here this morning, for singing his praises, for wanting to do his will, for wanting to put him first in our lives. He doesn't judge us because what we're doing is not perfect, because our singing is perhaps not as nice as we'd like it to be, etc., etc. We've already prayed this morning, our Father, who is in heaven, may your name be hallowed. It's a God before whom we bow in reverence, yes, of course. We don't discard reverence. But to whom we can bring this morning, whatever our circumstances, we can bring him our fears for the coming week. Some of you have a difficult week ahead. Some of you have situations that you're dreading. We have a heavenly father, a God who loves us, a God who is concerned about us, who God who answers prayers when we seek his guidance for our future, a God who answers prayers when we're concerned about our grandchildren, a God who is our father in heaven. And what had made the difference, what had enabled us to enter into this wonderful love of our Heavenly Father, it was the fact that we have one Lord and Saviour. And there is for us just one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. One Lord, one Saviour. A title that is both comforting and challenging. It's comforting because when we contemplate the greatness of God, the creator of this unimaginably enormous universe, you and I feel so unworthy, don't we? We think, what are we doing? Coming near to this wonderful God. One of our congregation is standing on the pavement. <laughs> um, coming near to this wonderful God. What are we doing with our puny efforts, our inadequate words? We feel soiled by the fact that we've made a mess of things. We've fallen short. We don't need any preacher to tell us. We've fallen short of God's standards. We've even fallen short of our own standards. And we learn. We learn through the Christian gospel that God was so concerned about our lostness that he came to this earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to show us how to live and to take upon himself our shortcomings, our failures, our sins, the things we had messed up. 
and to take those things to the cross and there all our failings, all that separated us from God were nailed to that cross. We have a saviour. One who saves us from our lostness, saves us from our sin, saves us from ourselves even and introduces us to that one God, God our Father. The God whom Jesus addressed as Father. Isn't that wonderful? To have a heavenly Father and a Saviour who loves me so much that he died for me. That's great. I've got my ticket for heaven. Shame about with the others. Is that what we say? No. Because my third point is that we are one family. One family. We're not spiritual Donald Trumps treading on other people to get on. We're not pursuing our own trajectory, looking down on people who haven't got it. We're not following our own cosy Jesus and me spirituality, priding ourselves on knowing all the answers and smiling condescendingly on those whose doctrine isn't quite right. Let's think again about that message the message translation of that chapter. What did Paul say in this modern paraphrase? We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level. What good advice that is, isn't it? We're, we're sensitive to one another. Some of us have got backgrounds that have scarred us. Some have got present situations that are a great handicap to us in serving Jesus Christ. Some of us have had the privilege of studying, others haven't. What does it matter if we're all different? God cares, says the scripture. Paul writes, God does care when you use your freedom, your spirituality, your maturity carelessly in a way that leads a fellow believer still vulnerable to those old associations. What is the problem? The danger is that my brother may get confused because Christ died, not just for me, he died as we sing, for you and you and you and you. He died for the world. God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't just die that I might have a private salvation. He died to make you and me his co-workers, his instruments to reach others so that they can come into this wonderful salvation. Do we have hassles about meat offered to idols? Of course we don't. I can't think of any exactly parallel situation. But when I flaunt my biblical knowledge and confuse or offend my brother or sister's simple faith, I'm wounding Jesus Christ. If I complain over the way the chairs were arranged, 
I may be despising the one who has carefully planned that seating arrangement so as to enhance our fellowship. And in this way, I hurt Jesus Christ. If I look disapprovingly at the hymns or songs that have been chosen, am I offending a brother or sister who has prayed over that selection, seeking to help the congregation to worship? And by my criticism, am I wounding Christ? We're one family. We're called to love one another. We're called to build one another up. We're called to engage in what someone has called a wonderful conspiracy of love to make one another the best possible Christians we can be. And if our knowledge, if our superior wisdom harms someone else, even to the point of almost destroying their faith, in doing that, says the scripture, we are wounding Christ. I said just now that it was both challenging and comforting to call Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's something we sing, don't we, with hardly a moment's thought. The early Christians probably also sang Jesus is Lord. But they would have been very much aware that it might cost them their freedom, even their lives, Because the song the pagan Roman Empire was singing wasn't Jesus is Lord, it was Caesar is Lord. And one reason why the early Christians were hated and persecuted was because they were marching to a different drumbeat. They'd removed Caesar from his throne and said, for us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. For us in Lindfield here, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom if we're hearing the words of Christ clearly, who says, follow me, we place him as superior to all our other commitments. And in Lindfield, we are called to swim against the tide. In our 21st century, there are idols to be toppled, idols of fame and success, idols of selfish sexual gratification. There are prevailing godless ideas that need to be challenged rather than mindlessly followed. This week, some of us will face some of these issues and if we're alert and awake spiritually, you will know, we will know when it is right to speak out, when it is right to say no, when it is right to give a word of caution or a word of advice. And God is helping us, and he will help us, to do what the Apostle Paul was helping those early Christians in Corinth to do, to apply Christian principles to a variety of different situations. But always remembering three things. We have one Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. 
We have one Saviour through whom all things came and through whom we live. And we are one family, bound together by the saving death of Jesus Christ. And our guiding principle will be not knowledge or wisdom or whatever else we may put in its place. Our guiding principle will be love. Because love never fails. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of Scripture. Help us, Lord, to retain in our hearts those things that you're wanting us to apply to our lives this week. And help us to so live that our lives proclaim the oneness of our Father, the one God, and the wonderful love of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and the love that we show to one another as God's family. Help us, Lord, to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.